Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached this message on June 18th, 2017, which was Father's Day, so I thought for Father's Day I would interrupt my sermon series in 1 Peter to preach a two-part series on the parable of the prodigal son, which can also be called the parable of the loving father. And in this first sermon, I'm focusing on the more popular part of the parable, which is the parable related to the younger son. And I'll be honest, uh, six or seven years ago, I kind of thought of the younger son story as not really applying to those of us who've been Christians for a while. I thought that the younger son story was all about coming to faith in Christ to begin with. And then maybe the older son's story had something to do with us. Well, I now see how foolish that is. And what I want to do in this sermon is to challenge us to think about the ways in which we're a lot like the younger son. So that's what this sermon is about. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 to begin with, because that establishes the context. And then I'm going to read the first part of the parable, which is verses 11 through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. A couple of weeks ago, this headline appeared on the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical Christian news website. Now get this. This is what the headline said. Listen carefully. I swear nobody even cracked a smile when I read this earlier. Father of three wonders when he'll get chance to influence others for Christ. This article continues. 
stating that he had been feeling a sense of purposelessness and melancholy for some months now, local father of three, Andrew Harbaugh, recently began wondering when he would ever get a chance to impact anyone for the sake of Christ, sources close to him confirmed Thursday. Harbaugh reportedly spends his days working 10 hours at a desk job and his nights talking and playing with his three children. I just wish God would place a few people in my life for whom I could make an eternal difference, Harbaugh told reporters. I just don't have time to do anything for the kingdom of God while I provide for my family and spend time with my three boys. Surely the Lord will have something important for me to do someday, he added, sadly. And none of you get it either. (laughs) No, I hope you see the irony. Maybe it's not funny, but it is ironic. Um, The irony here is, is pretty thick. Like Mr. Harbaugh in this article, each one of us who is a father has a God-given opportunity, a God-given responsibility to do the most important work for God's kingdom imaginable, which is this, sharing with our own children the love, the grace, and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live out what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that these words don't equally apply to mothers as well. But since it's Father's Day, I'm taking aim especially at us fathers or grandfathers because these words also apply to you. The most important mission that God has given us in our life right now is to do everything we can to go out and make disciples of our own children and our own grandchildren. And we don't, we don't get to outsource this holy work of discipleship to our wives. Raising disciples, teaching discipleship, teaching scripture, praying with our children, bringing them to church, being involved in church ourselves. This is not women's work. It is our responsibility to let us please not shirk this responsibility. If we are to be imitators of God, as Paul says in Ephesians, and we can learn a lot about who God is from this parable, then we ought to imitate God our Father in His passion for bringing His children, indeed our children, into a saving relationship with Him through Christ. Please notice that Jesus tells this parable of the prodigal son because of His and His Father's passion for saving the lost. That's why I included the first couple of verses in this chapter because I wanted to give you context why it is that Jesus has told this parable to begin with. He tells two shorter parables which are similar, they make similar points, but they're a little different um, prior to the parable of the prodigal son. But the context is the same. He's telling this parable today because Pharisees and scribes 
do not like the way that Jesus is receiving sinners. That means receiving sinners into God's kingdom, offering them God's mercy and grace, saving sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes also dislike the fact that Jesus is sharing meals with them. Now, sharing a meal with these sinners symbolizes God's love for them, God's forgiveness of them, God's acceptance of them. And the scribes and the Pharisees don't like it one bit. More than anything, the parable of the prodigal son describes the extraordinary lengths to which God will go to save us sinners. In fact, we see this in the very first couple of verses of the parable. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, in this ancient culture, what the younger son was asking for was completely out of line. It was disrespectful in the extreme. It was callous in its disregard for the welfare of the man's father or his older brother. For one thing, you don't ask for your share of the inheritance prior to your father dying. Because what you're saying in that request is, you're worth more to me dead than alive. In fact, I wish you were dead. But not only that, the father was likely middle-aged, maybe a little bit older, But he probably had a lot of years of life ahead of him. And I'm sure that that father was counting on having his entire estate to support himself, to live off of, you know, for as long as he can, for the rest of his life. And and in ancient Jewish culture, he, um, by dividing up his land early, he would have given two thirds of his estate to the older son, and then one-third to the younger son. So instead of having 100% of his estate to live off of for his support, he'd only have about 67%. And we can imagine that there could be some unforeseen circumstances, some disaster might might strike, maybe a natural disaster, maybe a famine, um, maybe recession, maybe... Uh, bad investments, maybe theft, but any number of things could happen so that that missing 33% could mean the difference between life and death, between health and sickness, between prosperity and destitution. Not to mention the permanent damage that giving his younger son his share of the inheritance would do to the man's reputation, to the, to the family name. I mean, this is what's called a shame-honor culture. It's not like ours. But, but one's honor was everything back then. And in, even in the Middle East today, this is still a big part of their culture. If you do something, if a child does something to bring dishonor to the family, that family is, is ruined at least in the eyes of the community. Everyone in the community would know what happened because 
the younger son liquidates his share of the inheritance. So he sells the land. Somebody else buys the land adjacent to the father's property. I mean, it's not going to be a secret what's happened here. And it's going to be deeply shameful. All that to say, this son's behavior is terrible. But why on earth does the father agree to the younger son's terms? The father could have said no and then had his servants take him out back and beat him. That's what a lot of fathers would have done back then. But not this one. Why? Because of love. Because this father loves his child and wants to save his child more than he wants anything else. He loves his child more than he loves his money or comfort or security. He loves his child more than he loves his own pride. Sure, the father could lay down the law and punish his son and force him to stay home. But he knows that if he did that, he would risk losing his son forever. The most loving thing the father can do, no matter how personally painful, no matter how costly, is to give his younger son what he wants. Even though it will cause his younger son great suffering. Now let me make an important theological point here. I've heard more than a few preachers say recently that God never wants his children to suffer. And when I hear that, I, I need to ask, what, what Bible are you reading? I mean, read the Bible. God often causes or allows his children to suffer, not because God is cruel or vindictive, but because he loves us and he wants to save us. We see it in this parable, right? On the other side, on the other side of the disasters that befell this younger son, after he returned home and found love and mercy, I'm sure that the younger son would say, Thank God those disasters happened to me. I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy. But I can now be grateful to God that God used these things for my good. If that's what it took for God to get my attention and to wake me up and to help me come to my senses so that I could return home and and love my father and be grateful. Well, then it was totally worth it. And God does this sort of thing all the time. God is in control. If you are his child, there's nothing you're going through that he isn't using for your good or for the world's good. Even even your suffering, however difficult, is a part of God's plan for you. And it is good. Just yesterday, a clergy friend of mine posted the following on Facebook. It's always better to go to your knees in prayer before you are driven there. And I was reflecting on this parable and thinking about this scripture, and I I replied, that's true, 
But what mercy on God's part that he's happy to have us either way. (laughs) I find in my own life that I often fail to go to my knees when life is smooth sailing. When there isn't a cloud in the sky, figuratively speaking, and everything is sort of going my way. It is a severe mercy for God to do something to upset that and to bring me to my knees. God loves me enough to discipline me. As the author of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? I like the way um, C.S. Lewis describes God's discipline. Now, Lewis uses the word punishment. Uh, I prefer the word discipline because God's not punishing us for our sins. He's disciplining us so that we can become the people that he wants us to be. Anyway, so substitute the word discipline where Lewis says punishment and you'll get the point. Lewis writes, I'm beginning to find out that what people call the cruel doctrines are really the kindest ones in the long run. I used to think it was a cruel doctrine to say that troubles and sorrows were punishments. But I find in practice that when you are in trouble, the moment you regard it as a punishment or discipline, it becomes easier to bear. If you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. Think of it as a place of training and correction, and it's not so bad. Maybe every one of us has someone that we love who is currently lost. Lost to God, lost to Jesus Christ, lost to us. Maybe even our own child or our own children. Maybe we're estranged from them and we we desperately long to be reunited with them. We desperately long to be reconciled with them. We want them to be reconciled with God. But it's it's as if they've rejected us and they've rejected our values. Perhaps they've rejected our faith and they've, and they've run away like that younger son in the parable. They've run away to that far country. Listen, this parable reminds us that even if they've run away from us, they can't run away from God. And God's not done with them. God is working through their lives and their circumstances even right now. So don't you give up on them. You keep praying for them and trust that our Heavenly Father may yet bring them back home. I confess that many years ago, when I thought of this parable, especially the first half of the parable, which we're looking at today, we'll look at the second half next week. But I thought that the first half of the parable, the story of the younger son, really wasn't for me. I mean, not anymore. After all, I was a Christian. I'd already accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord. I'd already received God's gift of eternal life. I'd already repented and placed my faith in Christ. I was saved. I'd already been converted. 
And isn't that what the younger son's story is, is all about? Maybe the older son has something to teach me, but not the younger son, right? Well, now that I'm older and life has beaten me up a little bit more, and maybe I've even become a little bit wiser, I now think, who am I kidding? The longer I'm a Christian, the more I see how much I'm like the younger son. Maybe you will too. In last week's sermon, I mentioned one of my childhood heroes, Roger Moore, James Bond, and uh, how he died a few weeks ago, and I reflected on that. Well, last week, another one of my childhood heroes died. You know who it was? Adam West. That's right. He is and will always be Batman in my mind. Um, On Friday night, I saw that the city of Los Angeles uh, honored him by, um, by projecting the famous bat signal on the side of the city hall building in his honor uh, on Friday night. Now, by all accounts, West was uh, gracious to his fans. He was generous with his time. Um, He didn't take himself or his fame too seriously. But I learned uh, reading one of his obituaries that one of his life's crushing disappointments was that back in 1989... When Tim Burton, the director, was remaking Batman and starting a new movie franchise, Burton didn't even consider Adam West for the role of Batman. Now, I'm thinking, well, now why would he? I mean, at that point, Adam West was 60 years old. That's, that's considered too old in Hollywood. He, he was washed up in the eyes of many people. Besides, the way West played Batman as this unambiguously good hero without any sort of inner turmoil, without any conflicts, without a dark side. By by 1989, that was considered hopelessly old-fashioned, out of date, obsolete. So over the course of just 20 years, Adam West went from being one of one of the biggest stars, to being a nobody. And the same thing happens to the younger son. The younger son's story reminds me of that line from that Styx song, Too Too Much Time on My Hands, where he says, um, uh, I've got dozens of friends and the fun never ends, that is, as long as I'm buying. (laughs) The younger son has dozens of friends, and the fun never ends as long as he's buying, too. He's incredibly popular as long as he's buying. He has friends, he has women, he has personal glory. I'm sure that he even thought that he had love. Listen, it's an old cliche, but it is absolutely true that each one of us human beings has a God-shaped hole in our heart. We were created to live in in a perfect, loving relationship with God. And until we find God, or I should say, until God finds us, we will desperately find 
other things, things that are less than God to fill to fill that hole up. I mean, if if Adam West was living off of his fame as Batman and his uh, former popularity and his former acclaim and that stardom that seemed to disappear as he grew older, he would have lived a pretty empty life. I hope for his own sake that he found Christ and that he found what he really needed to fill up that hole in his heart. I'm not, I have no, I don't know one way or the other. Um, but we, our hearts like this vacuum that will just sort of suck things up that we'll, we will desperately look, look to, to, to fill us up. When in reality, only God and the things of God can satisfy us. The world promises to, to, to give us what our heart desires. But if you notice, the world's promises always come with strings attached. The world says, I will love you if, there's always a condition, if, if you're young, if you're thin, if you're physically fit, if you have a good job, if you make a lot of money, if you make good grades, if you get into a good college, if you make the team, if you have good health, if you are a good parent, if you have well-behaved children, if you live in the right neighborhood. Too often, too often I confess that I listen to that voice. Just last week I was at annual conference in Athens, and you're going to hear a report next Sunday from Suzanne about the conference itself. I guess one of the new highlights, or excuse me, one of the highlights of the conference was that we have a new bishop, Sue Hoppert Johnson, and this was sort of her debut. She preached at a few of the worship services, and her sermons were, in general, electrifying. During the ordination service, she preached to those clergy who were about to be ordained or commissioned or licensed to become pastors and deacons in local churches. And her text for the sermon was a passage from Luke chapter 10. This is when Jesus um, sends out the 72 disciples to go, you know, two by two, to go into towns around Galilee to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and to drive out demons. And she applied Jesus' instructions to those disciples, to, you know, um, these disciples who were about to be ordained. And she reflected on a verse, verse 7, that I've never really paid much attention to. Jesus says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. This is the, ver- this is the part I want to focus on. Do not go from house to house. Do not go from house to house. In other words, Jesus says, when the disciples come into a town and someone offers them a place to stay, they should avoid the temptation to seek more comfortable, more spacious lodging at someone else's house. Even if it's freely offered to them. 
Stay where you are and be content, Jesus says. Don't look for something better. Don't look for something better. Are you kidding me? I am constantly in my life looking for something better. Achieving something better is is how I know that I'm I'm a valuable person. That's how I know that I'm worthy of love and acceptance. If I don't have these objective measures of success, who's going to love me? Who's going to be well pleased with me? I mean, I can hardly even enjoy annual conference without looking over my shoulder at my fellow clergy, seeing what they have, how prestigious their appointment is, how high their church's steeple is, what awards and recognitions they've received. And I compare myself to them. And I'm miserable because I I, I worry that I'm falling behind. Listen, this... This younger son, he runs away to this far, far away country. And he practically starves to death. And that's whenever we're looking to someone other than God and his son, Jesus, to fill us up. To, to give us what only God can give us. To give us that, that no strings attached kind of love that only God can give us. Whenever we look to something, in my case, you know, my own career, you know, those sorts of things. Man, we're going to starve to death. Are any of you starving this morning? I would argue, I would suggest that from today's scripture, it's because you're looking to someone other than God and his son, Jesus, to fill you up. And you've become, you've become like the younger son who's looking for for something in that far country, something that he thinks he won't find right here at home. That's what I'm, when I'm looking over my shoulder at my fellow clergy, that's what I'm doing. I'm saying, God, what you've given me is not enough. I don't trust that what you've given me will really make me happy. So I'm looking across the way. I'm looking across the aisle. I'm looking a few rows over. I'm thinking, I want that. I want that. Not what you've given me. Not what I have. We all, you don't just have to, you don't have to just be a Methodist minister to be appointed. Every single one of us in this congregation is appointed by God. You are appointed by God to your vocation, whatever it is, or to your retirement. (laughs) You are appointed by God to your family. You are appointed by God to your marriage. You are appointed by God to the home in which you live. You are appointed by God to your neighborhood. You are where you are. You do what you do for God and his glory because he's put you there. Your life belongs to God. You're supposed to live for Him alone. You are not supposed to seek your own glory. You are supposed to seek His glory alone. And inasmuch as you fail to do that, don't be surprised that you might find yourself in that far country starving. So, 
I think we all can be like the younger son. But we can be like the younger son in another way, a far better way. Which is to say, every single one of us can turn around. Turn around and we will find our Father waiting to meet us, looking for us, waiting for us to return, running toward us. And by the way, when you hear about this father, this middle-aged or older man running, you need to know that in the first century, in that culture, this was deeply an undignified thing to do. Um, We are in a very different culture. Uh, People did not run for exercise um, back then, unless they were in the Olympics or some kind of games like that. And certainly older men did not run. It was undignified. And that reminds me, I promise you, in the past month, on two occasions in the past month, uh, I, I, tried, I've, I've, I tried to run barefoot again. You know, I've run, I run, and um, I, I used to run barefoot for several years, and then I had to give it up. And then I foolishly decided to try it again. And recently, on two occasions while I was running barefoot on my street, um, sheriff's, de- sheriff's deputies um, literally pulled up beside me to ask if I was okay. <laughs> because some people had called 911 when they saw me running because they figured something was wrong with me. Well, in, you know, that's kind of like the way it was back in Jesus' day. This, the fact that this father is running indicates that something is either wrong with him or something is so right with him. He is so joyful that he can't even hold it in. He can't contain himself. And of course, it is the latter. So let's be like the younger son. When we find ourselves in that faraway country, which, which can happen, even to those of us who are Christians, let's remember that we can always return home. Let me point out something cool, and then I'll, I'll close. Um, now notice that the, that the son has prepared a speech for his father. He's going to three sentences. He's going to say three things. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So he sees that, you know, he has wronged not only his family, he's also wronged God. You know, when we sin against each other, we're also sinning against God. So he's right. That's true. And then he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Well, that's certainly true. He's not worthy of it at all. And then finally, Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay? But notice that after the, he, he goes home and the father runs to greet him and to hug him and to kiss him, he's able to say the first two things. You know, I'm, he's able to say, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts him. The father doesn't let him say that last thing about living as one of his hired servants. I think that's intentional because God wants to remind us that our status as his beloved sons and daughters 
has nothing whatsoever to do with us and what we do. We are not. See, the younger son thought he could be paying back, you know, his father as working as his servant, you know, Um, maybe getting back into his father's good graces by being a slave for a while. But that's not at all like the father won't even hear of it. He immediately before the younger son does anything for his father, the father says, bring bring the best robe and put it on him. Uh, Kill the fatted calf. Right. Um, Bring me my ring, the ring, the signet ring. It was a symbol of authority and power and status. Put put the ring on my son's hand and, and, and give him sandals to wear. Immediately before this younger son does anything, he is completely loved and accepted by God or by the father, I should say, who is God by the father without he's like made he's made one of his one of his sons, given all the status of of a beloved son. And that's you and me. When we've accepted this gift of eternal life in Christ, when we've been adopted by God into his family because of what Christ accomplishes through his death and resurrection. When we receive that gift through faith, it's as if we've never sinned at all. It's as if we are perfect in our father's eyes. Our father looks at each one of us who is his children the same way he looks at his son, Jesus. Remember that you are. God is not holding anything over your head. God is no longer angry at you because of your sins. Your sins are wiped out. You're forgiven. You're God's beloved sons and daughters. Remember that. Don't let the devil tell you anything else. Okay? Let's pray. Gracious God, what a powerful message of your no-strings-attached kind of love. We don't deserve it. And if we were merely your slaves throughout our entire life and nothing more, that would be incredibly gracious on your part. But we are thankful that because of what your son Jesus did on the cross, we are far more than just servants. We are your children. And nothing can change that if we sincerely believe in you and your son. We have forgiveness. So help us live with that kind of confidence. Don't let us listen to those voices that cause us to doubt or that tell us God can't love us or whatever those voices might say. It's all about this free gift that you've given to each one of us. And so we pray the words of that great hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll feel free to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We are on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, and we have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and an 11 o'clock traditional service. Hope to see you there.